0: so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. They first came
1: on our radar when we didn't really know who they were or didn't associate them with the financial group at that time.
0: That's Nick Carr. He's a senior manager of the advanced practices team at FireEye. The research we're discussing today is titled On the Hunt for Fin7, Pursuing an Enigmatic and Evasive Global Criminal Operation. It's research Nick did along with Kimberly Goody, Steve Miller, and Barry Vengerick, who we'll be hearing from momentarily. We recorded this interview back in August, just days after the United States District Attorney's Office for the Western District of Washington had unsealed indictments and announced the arrests of three individuals within the leadership ranks of FIN 7.
1: We considered them an uncategorized threat cluster that we were responding to. And our experiences with them started with responding to and unveiling a bunch of new tools that the group was successfully using to surveil and attempt to extract payment card data from one of our clients.
0: Now, this is a group that a lot of vendors refer to as the Carbonac group, just for uh, for clarification there. But you all have made the point that perhaps not all Carbonac use equates exactly one-to-one with the group you're tracking as FIN7.
2: About this same time last year, we released a blog post where we tried to talk a little bit about Carbonac versus FIN7.
0: That's Barry Vengerich. He's a technical director on the advanced practices team at FireEye.
2: So uh, we usually try to avoid naming a threat group after a tool just because we don't like to make a one-to-one association with malware or a specific tool set with a threat group, primarily because of cases like this where we can see multiple threat actors or overlapping groups using the same backdoor. So what it looks like is uh, Carbonac may have been shared or used by individual operators transitioning between different groups or or criminal gangs for different operations. So calling all activity that was associated with Carbonac and the Carbonac group is really kind of reductionist and makes it a lot harder to differentiate between different threat groups. So what we've actually seen is the understanding uh, from other vendors as well has kind of peeled back a little bit as time has gone on to show that some of the earlier Carbonac activity that folks like Kaspersky and ESET reported on is definitely a different cluster than what we've seen being used by FIN7. And if you look at that blog post that we did last year, we actually broke down some of the major clusters of activity we saw using Carbonac.
1: Yeah, so overall, FIN7 is a FireEye name that fits our naming convention, if that helps for background for you. It's similar to the APT, you know, APT1, obviously, some of the APT numbered groups, it represents our promotion of a cluster or multiple clusters of activity into a high-fidelity named either APT group or in this case, financial group. So FIN7 is our terminology for this cluster, and we've been pretty consistent for who these attackers are throughout. And we've also tried to be clear in our several blogs as we share new techniques that FIN7 is using that that is indeed completely separate or we've maintained that these are separate from what others call um, carbonate group. And it's really hard to get into the, uh, how other people categorize groups, especially when they start using your terminology when others use the term fin seven to describe activity they've observed. Sure.
0: Well, let's walk through uh, some of what they're up to, what they go after and who they're targeting. Can you take us through that?
2: I think fin is interesting in that we saw them kind of hit two major industries and clusters, and they're not exclusively targeting these industries, but they're where we saw the vast majority of activity. Uh, so initially we saw them heavily targeting the hospitality industry. So hotels and casino gaming, and then we saw them make a transition into the restaurant industry. So um, the tactics they were using Varied slightly between the industries they were targeting, particularly in how they were approaching the spearfishing. But those are kind of the two major industry sectors that we've seen them targeting heavily.
0: Now they are fairly sophisticated here, and it seems as though they also have a, a good amount of uh, resources at their disposal. I mean, they're they're using uh, things like spearfishing, actually doing the homework on the people that they're going after, which is resource
1: intensive. Yeah, we would definitely agree with that assessment. When you get into the world of saying someone is sophisticated, we can't measure someone's success and say that that was sophisticated in itself because that might have to do more with the maturity of their victims and defenses in place. But we've tracked them long enough and we tried to highlight in the blog some of the things that we felt make Fin7 sophisticated. All the first things they developed that were completely their own, some of their really unique mechanisms they used to compromise clients, and, and we walked through some of those innovative things that they deployed. But like you said, the spear phishing, the quality of that, I, I suppose we got insight into multiple teams working at the same time. So not only did they have high quality phishing emails and social engineering schemes, based on our the amount of response we did into this group, we would actually be responding to a Fin7 compromise at one client and then see them attempting to get into several more FireEye clients uh, with these other techniques. So it really gave us unique visibility into the scope and scale of this activity.
2: Yeah, and speaking to the sophistication, you know, as loosely as we're using the term, uh, I think one thing that's easy to talk about because it's really easy for people to conceptualize is how they were doing the initial spear phishing. So um, they were almost exclusively targeting customer service personnel, So whether that would be uh, booking agents at hotels that are responsible for booking large groups or uh, individual restaurant managers who are, you know, kind of the first line for fielding complaints or customer service lines that field complaints at a restaurant, they were really aware of who they were targeting and how they were building the spear phishing towards those targets in order to elicit folks to open the uh, spear phishing attachments that they were sending all the way down to including detailed instructions on how to bypass some built-in office security mechanisms like enabling macros and enabling active content in um, the spear phishing documents. So they were really aware of the folks that they were choosing to target at the victim organizations were people that were in customer service roles and would in the normal course of their jobs be dealing with a lot of people they've never talked to before and a lot of unsolicited email attachments that they would have to open. So, they kind of bypassed a lot of that best practices, user training stuff that is always being talked about for to mitigate spear phishing.
0: Hmm. Now, one of the things you highlighted in your research was how they were creating novel obfuscation methods and that they were varying them uh, at a fairly rapid clip. Can, can you describe what they were
1: up to there? Yes, yeah, so there was a period where, again, we saw these, what I would categorize as multiple teams, and the team that was developing their phishing documents, they were developing and testing those documents on at one point a daily basis around i think july of 2017 really yeah, went, it, it reached the height of its rapid development and they came up with a technique of obfuscating their commands on the uh, the command interpreter that was so unique we gave it its own term but it was obviously successful because then on a daily basis we saw them tweak and change and so it was a grind to stay up with every variation there. And then we'd see those tested in a number of ways and then delivered to our clients, to the FireEye clients attempt to get into their stores the same day, you know, via phishing emails.
0: Now, another thing that you highlighted, uh, you have a section here describing uh, all the phone calls that they would make to these organizations. They used a technique of complaining about a lot of things. Uh, One of the things that caught my eye is they would lodge food poisoning complaints, which, I love internally you all called that fin digestion. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Describe to me what was the approach here by these these complaining phone calls.
2: So I, th- I think the main takeaway from how they were doing this spear phishing is just like I talked about a little earlier. They wanted to create a sense of urgency around the communications. So we would see frequently where they wouldn't even introduce the spear phishing document until they had had a two or three email exchange with one of the users on the In the victim organization, just to build that kind of sense of trust that this is a legitimate communication I'm having, and then pass along the spear phishing attachment. We saw them use web complaint forms, so kind of an avenue outside of traditional email. And then we saw scenarios where they would call the victim after they had sent the spear phishing to elicit them to open the attachment over the phone call. So, really persistent, more advanced social engineering tactics around actually getting the initial victims to open those uh, attachments.
1: Yeah, and if if you start to break down people calling to simply ask, "Did you receive my complaint?" or "Did you see receive my email?" It's a, a really unique way that Fin 7s able to identify if a security solution blocked the phishing email and it didn't make it to them, and if they did receive it, they can walk them through it or continue to social engineer in ways that are, you'd expect a very good red team to use.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to, to actually make the phone call to make sure that you got the malicious email. And that's not something you hear every day. One of the things you included in your research was uh, you had a sample letter that they had uh, written that they were claiming to be from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And it's interesting sort of to contrast... Some of the obvious shortcomings in this, but yet, I guess, still successful. I mean, it it says uh, the first word is hello, but hello is misspelled, uh, <laughs> which is not off to a good start. And there are, you know, the, what, I guess that we sort of joke about all the grammar errors
1: within this. But but I guess it's good enough to work. So this was a unique one because that is so front and center. We almost didn't include it, but yeah. the FDA example, um, two parts here. You can see the amount of effort that went into not only the templated email that appears to come from FDA and delivered ostensibly from the FDA, which was spoofed here, but even using the specific center within the FDA, all of these Photoshop templates that are customized and professional looking. And then beneath it within the blog, we also show you that 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 same templating was matched within the encrypted document where they further social engineer the users to engage with and in this case enable macros. But yeah, this was a rare one because it was a one-off that went a little bit more broadly that we didn't see this language before. So perhaps as this was written as a a one-off campaign, the language didn't go through as much review perhaps and has a misspelling. To be honest with you, the spelling was not typically an issue if it was emailing or contacting that they left a backpack here or calling ahead for special allergies or making a catering order. And then to be honest with you, when customer service is engaging with the general public, I'm sure that spelling mistakes are pretty common. So, um, you know, this one, I think, stands out a little bit because it appears to come from the FDA on very official letterhead. So spelling mistakes wouldn't be there. But um, in other cases, we didn't see them so much and, and they probably wouldn't be too big of a deal.
2: Yeah. I mean, a good example is one that we were just looking at this week where they complained that their daughter had been injured at a location of the restaurant and they were trying to send documentation of medical ER visits to treat the injury. So obviously, once again, building that sense of urgency and really getting into a scenario where whoever receives that email is going to open it as quickly as they can.
1: I see. Yeah, there's. It's urgency, almost some a litigious nature to them as well. If you yes. look at the kinds of things they submit in, this is, this is something that would be a very bad thing if I don't engage and have a record of responding. On.
2: And my suspicion is they move to that because it's much more successful. We initially used to see them just do things like a catering order or a, um, I left my backpack in the store it's almost all transitioned to stuff of a more litigious emergency nature, like the food made me sick or my child got hurt in your store.
0: Now, one of the things you all were able to do was to track individual personas uh, over the course of keeping an eye on this. Uh, do you have any sense for the scope of this? How many people are involved or are members of this organization?
1: At least three. No. Uh, At least three. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of the arrests, we tried to... Um, we track tool marks that are associated with each phase, and we later determine how relevant something is or how linked it might be to a particular group. So in some cases, you might have a tool developer who leaves something they might not have known they left within a phishing document. That You might have someone setting up infrastructure who makes a mistake. In a lot of these cases, it's a combination of small mistakes or small things where attackers might not know what can be identified within there. And then in this case, we released some of those personas that we found to be interesting and and relevant. In some cases, it turns out that personas that we track are tied to a tool creator that doesn't work in the particular group or someone from the criminal underground who's serving and sharing and passing around a document. In these cases, the metadata, a lot of what we're sharing is from an artifact that's pretty new and we suspect the attackers were maybe not aware of it. I think what the artifacts
2: are actually stuff that we pulled out of the phishing documents and we went into a little bit in the blog. So as far as scale, we can infer a lot from the indictments and how they describe the organizations working. So where the three indicted individuals were kind of more at the top and type of a project management or overview role it definitely infers that there's, you know, quite a few folks working on different aspects of the campaigns against the victims. So folks sending out the spear phishing, folks doing the actual intrusions, folks harvesting the card data. So some of the details in the indictment kind of point to a very widespread, large organization conducting these campaigns and operating against multiple victims at the same time.
0: Yeah. Since the indictments came down, how have their activities shifted? Have they gone quiet for a while, or are they still at it?
2: So about February of last year and then picking up towards the end of summer of last year, we were tracking some parallel activity that um, Proofpoint initially blogged about as a Battle War. So it was a very similar initial stage backdoor, very similar fishing to what we had seen from Fin 7. And that activity has kind of increased as what we had traditionally tracked as Fin 7 decreased. And so we're seeing a lot of parallels from that activity to the Fin 7 activity. And it's actually reached a point where we have enough evidence to say that this is either a direct offshoot or closely related to the previous Fin 7 activity. So that new strain of activity has actually been very consistent through with the indictment happening and until last week. We have some spear fishing they sent out last week. So... I think what you're seeing here is with an organization this large and diverse that taking two or three or four guys out of the equation is definitely not going to have a significant impact on their day-to-day operations in the way that some folks think it might just do the fact that this is a large criminal organization. So, and they're obviously have been very successful so far. So I don't We don't see any kind of material impact on the day-to-day based on the indictment. And I think that's something that uh, FBI and DOJ kind of intimated when they made the announcement that, like, hey, this isn't going to go away, but we're making progress by doing these indictments.
0: Now, uh, tell me about this company called Combi Security. Uh, You all uh, kept an eye on this group, evidently a front company for Fin7?
1: That's right. And that was confirmed by the DOJ announcement about Combi Security. This is, to me, one of the most fascinating pieces of the Fin7 story was the front company that had a full-on online persona as the, the world leaders in protecting large information systems from modern cyber threats. They had headquarters, they had three different headquarters locations and job advertisements. This was actually, once people knew to, to look for them, you know they were out there. In order to have a digital front company, I suppose you really need to embrace it always. So they had LinkedIn profiles for several members that had various roles within the team. One of the things we nuanced this with is it's certainly possible that there were unwitting individuals that were recruited to work for Combi Security, you know, Fin7, who may have thought they were operating a traditional red team or security test. And that access was then used for criminal purposes.
0: Hmm. There's no indication that there's a a legit side of combi security and groups are out there freelancing as Fin7. It it seems that uh, the whole thing was a front for these criminal activities.
1: Yes, I I can let uh, Barry chime in. But 100 percent, combi security is believed to be a a full front organization. Yeah,
2: there's no indication that there was any kind of legitimate security testing being done by Combi, and it's actually, it's kind of an ingenious way to do it. You give yourself some plausible deniability. The idea that there may have been folks who were hired by Combi and as unwitting participants is uh, interesting. And Personally, I think that after the first couple of uh, pen tests, they probably would have figured out what's going on, but it's really hard to say from our perspective, you know, how much individual operators who may have been employed by Combi really knew what they were in for.
1: Yeah, and as some were developers, according to you know information available on LinkedIn and things like that, developed uh, capabilities for them, it's certainly possible that this helped explain some of the really innovative things they were doing. This is obviously a well-resourced group after a few of their operations, Combi Security, then has some, some more money to spend on, on Fin7 development. Now, of course, that's speculation. I don't have insight into that. But for us, it was an interesting way to look back at the activity. Under this front. And by the way, not only do we expect this activity to continue to the uh, Fin7 members that have not been arrested here, I would expect, and we have reason to believe, their same behavior with setting up successful front companies would continue on. So we think this, based on this success, you know, this conservative estimate of billion dollars and in card data taken, this is obviously a successful model for financial criminal organization that's that's operating like this. So we'd expect them to continue to operate and do a lot of the same things that we saw Combi Security and FIN7 do.
0: Now, what are your recommendations in, in terms of people protecting themselves against this? If I'm in the hospitality industry, how do I protect my organization and my staff?
1: There's a lot of recommendations we give. So specific to FIN7, we provide not only a lot of technical details, but some other ways to quote unquote hunt through your environment, looking for the kinds of things they do. So we tried to provide some insight into behaviors from those. There are uh, a lot of things that can be gained about how it makes sense to secure your environment, but really, you know, in organizations that can do so there's some core recommendations. We tend to pick up and prevent fin seven intrusions with our email security. So an advanced email security solution, you don't want your users to be the first people to open a document or, enable macros, it makes sense. There's entire products and industries, uh, companies like ours that have developed technology that works in that regard. So there's some technical solutions. There's some policy solutions and recommendations restricting what you enable to run in your environment. Some of these phishing documents would drop scripts where highly locked down systems and systems with more up-to-date policies restricting user behavior would, were able to prevent Fin7 from being successful. But I think the key here is this is not a user awareness story. This is not going to be solved by user education. Barry started this by explaining the kinds of people they targeted, the people that have to open the email, the kind of people that have to click the attachment.
2: There's also mechanisms, and this is obviously stuff that was bypassed in a few cases, where you can have complaint forms to avoid customer service personnel dealing with uh, or web forms in general to avoid personnel dealing with attachments. However, you know, a lot of these forms allowed for an attachment to be provided as well, or after an email response from the form, an attachment was introduced. So obviously, Fin7 is aware of kind of these mitigation techniques that a lot of the victim organizations are putting in place. So it's really kind of a thorny issue on the initial spear phishing end. But some of the suggestions that Nick mentioned, like, uh, you know, having really limited isolated systems and user accounts that are, Responsible for dealing with those attachments are honestly some of the best ways to go. I think what we also saw is that some of the organizations that were uh, targeted are not well resourced to deal with this kind of threat in terms of how many controls you really need to be in place to isolate yourself from this. You know, if you're a small restaurant chain with a couple dozen locations. This type of stuff is way down the list of your costs and concerns, on, especially in the IT front. So it's really the real challenge, I think, is for those small to medium restaurants that, you know, may be processing a huge amount of cards, but just really aren't um, don't have a robust enough IT infrastructure to really even think about this in their normal threat model. So it's, it's really challenging for those smaller organizations.
1: Oh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention The most successful defense against FIN7 in our experience, now defense against them achieving their full mission, which was card data theft first and foremost, that's their bread and butter, was protecting your point of sale, your POS environment with end-to-end encryption or point-to-point encryption. So we had several scenarios where FIN7 was able to get past some of those controls or those in a lot of cases, those other controls weren't in place. And once they would attempt to get down and surveil the card environment and attempt to get that card data and run all their tools, custom built to extract that data, they weren't able to do so. They would encounter counter encryption and they would try to actually, we talked a little bit about the things they would do then, you know, how, what they would research, and then how they try to monetize the intrusion overall. But that is the core Fin 7 mission is payment card theft and Encrypting that the end-to-end yeah. POS systems was the most successful defense.
2: Yeah, and that's something that partly explains why most of the Fin7 activity that we responded to was in the U.S. The U.S. is kind of the last bastion for um, swipe card transactions, which are unencrypted and have card data hitting memory of affected point-of-sale systems. So I think as we see that transition to you know chip and PIN and chip and signature in the U.S., the EMV transactions, we're going to see these type of point of sale compromises go down. However, there are several very large industries in the U.S., one being gas stations that are kind of sunsetted. I guess sunset is not the right word. Uh, they have exemptions for uh, swipe transactions given the capital cost and replacing all the terminals and the gas pumps. Hmm. I think, Nick, they're, they're into like 2019 at this point, right? Or 2020. I believe
1: that's right. Yeah. They keep
2: pushing it back so there's definitely still vulnerable industries where there's a lot of swipe transaction and unencrypted card data floating around for to be targeted
1: yeah and sorry just a narrative side note when they did encounter the encryption we actually talked up front we were unveiled for the first time um, within our report some of the other things that we saw fin7 doing to monetize those compromises so you know targeting material non-public information that Fin7 may have used to gain a competitive stock trading advantage. So when they'd run into that encryption and really couldn't figure out how to subvert it, you know, identifying individuals within the corporate finance team and things like that once they were already in a network.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So while we're here, we might as well, you know, loot the whole place or if we can't get what we're the first the main thing we were after, we
1: shouldn't go home empty handed. Exactly. For me, it's simply that Steve, Kim, Barry, and myself had the opportunity to write a blog and spend two days putting this together, but we wouldn't be able to do this. Uh, This is not a Nick and Barry story or a Kim and Steve story without all of the work that went into this, not only from the many Mandiant engagements and all the people leading those investigations, all that hard work, but from the industry too. I mean, this was a big security industry story and something where... It was certainly not just FireEye, a lot of people contributing to stopping this activity, contextualizing, understanding it, and doing our best to collectively share that with each other as well.
2: I'd just like to reiterate what Nick mentioned, that we have a great advantage here at FireEye, that we have kind of unparalleled insight into what some of these attackers are doing within victim networks through our Mandiant incident Response, so it really helps us build kind of a, a big picture throughout an attack lifecycle of what attackers are doing. You know, just want to thank all our many incident responders as well as all the other folks across the company that really have helped our understanding of Fin Seven and you know allowed us to contribute to things like the blog. And
0: um, that's it. I'm I'm curious, just from a personal point of view, when when the USDA comes in and makes these arrests, and that's in large part to the work that you all have done. When you see the work you're doing pay off. Um, and that bad guys are being brought to justice. So there must be a certain amount of satisfaction and gratification that comes from that.
1: For me, at least, a lot of what uh, I do and a lot of what Barry does is responding to cyber espionage, responding to nation-state on nation-state activity, or nation-state actually on commercial industry or individuals, frankly. And there are seem to be more indictments and more uh, or, or more rhetoric and calling people out The interesting part about a story like this is you know, these are extradited and arrested individuals who are at least those caught here paying the price for the activity. You don't always get that in a lot of the others. There might be other geopolitical reasons to call out a group, but it won't realistically end in closure, I think, for people. So overall, I think it was exciting, interesting, and close to home, certainly, for around three years of this work that we've put in and keeping up. And getting to know the full identity behind the people we've gotten to know on network. We kind of know them on keyboard. We know what they do. And it's just fascinating to get that law enforcement visibility into everything about them.
0: Our thanks to Nick Carr and Barry Vengerich from FireEye for joining us. Their research is titled On the Hunt for Fin7, Pursuing an Enigmatic and Evasive Global Criminal Operation. That's research they did along with Kimberly Goody and Steve Miller. You can find it on the FireEye website. We'll also have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust.